Thank you so much, David, for joining me today. Very excited to, to finally get to chat, talk a little bit about your journey and, and some things that I'm passionate about in covering sort of impact and sustainable brands for close to 10 years now. So I've seen the environment change quite a bit. I've seen brands come and go and a really interesting time, I think, uh, for brands in the space. Before we get into real paper, I wanted to kind of talk about your journey because you have really interesting ones. You, you, you come from a lot of different backgrounds where, you know, your position now at CEO of Real Paper, you, you've kind of done all the things necessary to to be in this spot and help it grow. But but talk about that that journey you've had, your career path uh, before Real Paper. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And thanks for having me. So yeah, I started my career at Procter & Gamble. So grew up in kind of large CPG yeah. brand management. Um, I spent 18 years at P&G, uh, 18 great years. It's a great uh, training ground where you get a lot of exposure for leadership opportunities and just understand what it takes to be a good, solid, well-rounded operator in CPG. You know, my time there, I never actually worked on our paper business there. I spent most of my time on Crest and Tide and Oral-B. <laughs> but my my last role with the company, I think, was the one that was really transformational for me in that you know, I was leading global innovation for Tide. And uh, our organization kind of was presented with a challenge to say, hey, let's think differently beyond just the typical incremental innovation that we've, that we've done historically. So I capitalized on that opportunity, eventually went to the president and said, hey, give me a little bit of money to go start this new venture. You know, I think we need to be playing on another part of the market that we're not touching today that's called out of home or away from home laundry hmm. is equally as as large as the in-home business. Plus, you just have some dynamics going on in terms of density of population growth, uh, consumers living in uh, large urban metropolitan markets. They may not have access to a washer and dryer time is their really constrained resource. So let's provide them a service where they can get the experts of Tide to do the laundry for them. And so we created a an app service that uh, would allow users to order laundry and delivery or laundry and dry cleaning delivery, pickup and delivery. And uh, I basically, you know, kind of got the blessing, got a little bit of money to run it for six to so months. And he sent me up here to Chicago and I just kind of, all right, now I got to figure out how to build this, which was just an amazing experience and opportunity. Um, you know, I hired three other people to help get it off the ground. We were working out of incubators. So it was just like truly yeah. disconnected from the corporate engine. Right. Um, and the thrill and chaos of trying to build something in that early stage <laughs> was just, I don't know, it was fueling. It's and, fun. Uh, it's fun. Uh, yeah, I, I loved it. So um, so I did that for two years. And then, you know, we kind of found a path to scaling it and accelerated that plan through an acquisition of another company. And so it was a nice little ribbon to put on the end of that project that you know, it was just a, a, like I said, kind of a career highlight for me. And so at that time, like I really wanted to stay in the early stage work, loved kind of building brands and teams and understanding new business models to tap into changing consumer habits and motivations. And uh, I went to Kraft Heinz for a period of time to run a division there called Springboard Brands. And the aim of that organization was really to identify what are those emerging brands that can help set up the portfolio of legacy brands that may not be positioned to win with evolving needs, find those new transformational brands that play better on health and organics and those emerging trends in food and bev and figure out a way to partner with them from an 12-week accelerator program all the way up through acquisition and uh, enjoyed my time there. Um, you know, unfortunately, I think the company was kind of going through its own transformation. It had a, 
a few challenges and basically ended up sunsetting that organization. But in that role, uh, I actually met Livio Bestergio, who's the founder of Real Paper. Uh, he had also founded a snacks brand called Hippie Snacks, which is a chickpea-based natural organic snack food, which was just growing like crazy, one of the fastest growing natural snack brands. And, uh, you know, what we, we got to talking a little bit. He shared more about kind of his vision of kind of building a portfolio of brands that you know, could address opportunity areas in large categories where there really wasn't a brand proposition that resonated well with millennial and Gen Z and, you know, would certainly improve overall category benefits of better for you, better for the world, better for the environment. So just love that vision and mission that he had set forth there. And uh, and at that time, he actually had a concept for this brand called Real that he was looking to launch soon because this would have been like early 2019. And uh I was just, I loved, you know, I think initially just the visual identity of the brand, the logo, like how yeah. it came to life. It felt modern, like it had a really strong purpose behind it. And uh, we stayed connected a year later. I ended up coming over and joining him at Green Park Brands. And, um, you know, within about six or seven months, stepped over to run the business full time. That's awesome. It's uh... I love that that journey and path because they all they're all such a stepping stone. It's it's really cool to see. I think people thinking about you know how do we create these sort of modern sustainable brands for this category of consumers. The CPG is such an interesting place to be because you know it's kind of where we we go almost every day. We go to a store whether it's online or in real life, and we see so many brands. Right? I can't. Even, I'm sure you might know a better number than me, but just in a grocery store in general, how many brands are? Or, oh yeah, it's, I mean, you it's get to the skew level, which is a multiple it's of like really six. just quite astonishing. <laughs> yeah. it, it really is. Uh, but that, I, I kind of wanted to touch on your time at, at Green Park and maybe what were some learnings there? Because you know, Procter and Gamble, you kind of see it from you know a corporate lens. You look at scale. You know, obviously working with Crest, you're looking at you know big skews, you know big big sales, big revenue. But when you look at when you came to Green Park and you sort of looked at smaller brands and starting out and saying, hey, let's get our first sale, right? And then yeah. 10 and then 20 and then 1,000 sales. What I guess, what would you learn? What did you learn from that experience? And maybe what, what insights could you give maybe other, you know, CPG brands that are thinking about starting something not in the real paper niche, but like, you know, yeah. it, it, not in the toilet paper niche, but in something else that, that I mean, they might feel passionate about? I'd say there, there are probably a few things that come to mind. Let me... Uh start with three. I think the the first piece is, and this is what Livio's been brilliant at, and um, you know, through some of the partnerships he has, is have a really compelling brand proposition that's going after a, mm-hmm. a sizable opportunity that's kind of market ready. So identify the category, what are the gaps and the issues within that category that you're looking to address, and then come up with that brand proposition, how it comes to life, what's the tone of voice, what are the benefits that you're going to provide and the problem areas and the categories you'll address and get very hyper-focused on that. Because when you're stepping into a large category, you know, there's just a lot of noise. And like you say, in a grocery store too, in the context of someone's walking into a grocery store, they're just met with all these other distractions like their phone and their kids they're not going to have time to really go through a shelf set so you've got to be able to stand out you've got to be able to trigger some muscle or memory reaction that says oh i saw that here that's making a connection that i like that okay now what is it okay you've you've got me you've bought in now i can engage and understand if the proposition is right with me so all of that needs to kind of 
occur within this mental framework where we're more distracted than ever. And so yeah. being very single-mindedly focused on like a very consistent visual design and a very mm. uh, single-minded uh, benefit statement is key. Um, so getting that brand pr proposition right is absolutely number one. I think the second piece is just the product itself. So, you know, the, the branding can make that initial connection and drive enough appeal and desire to get them yep. to try it. But I think where a lot of brands tend to fail is that you still have to deliver on the usage experience. Because if you don't, they're not going to buy it again. And you're just they're dead one in the time, water. They're then. one time consumer. Yeah, one time. Yeah, and then you're spending that, yeah. all this money to acquiring users that will never build a you know, yeah. a business of scale. And so you're just wasting your time. And that's where I think it's a little bit harder for folks that maybe haven't been fortunate enough to spend time in an organization that's heavily resourced, like a PNG or a, you know, Unilever or someone else out there that does some product testing and concept work just to understand like, are people when they buy it or when they buy this product, they use it, what's their reaction? Does it drive delight? Does it um, create some intrigue or desire to do more? Are there significant gaps that like, hey, you better address these before you start looking to scale this business? Or like I said, you're going to be dead in the water. And then the third piece, which is just foundational, is just the financial business plan of what you're trying to do. And this is where, you know, I think I spend a fair amount of time of just trying to understand the economics of like, okay, yeah. what are we going to charge for our our product. So what's the end pricing going to be? How does that compare to comp to competitors out in the market? Can we command a premium? If so, how much? What's the cost structure look like? It's not going to be pretty early on, but what's that roadmap to eventually get to somewhere that's sustainable? Because again, if you can't get there, then you're also like, you're trying to push water uphill and yeah. it's almost an inevitable path of, you know, I, I can't create a viable long-term business here because I can never get the financials to work. And it, yeah. it requires a lot of investment. I think this is why typically large companies don't do the best job at creating new brands because mm. they don't have the patience to build something. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, you, you're going to have initial investments up front. You just have to have a clear plan like, okay, if we get here to this milestone, I know I can check off, I get the repeat to where I need it. I'll continue to invest this much to acquire customers because I'm anticipating my lifetime value is going to be Y. And so I can justify that. And that'll allow me to continue to raise money from investors and just kind of take a, a sequential step of like, okay, I'm going to get to this next tier or milestone and then i'll get to the next one and over time you know kind of like you're saying the career like every little incremental step ultimately gets you to your end destination let's talk about real paper now yeah. a couple things when somebody asks you you know what real paper is you know they're not familiar with sort of the industry and not fam familiar with real yet how do you explain it to them and second what was it about the brand or sort of the pitch that was given to you to, to have you come over and, and be CEO full-time and help grow it? Yeah, so Real Paper is a sustainable household paper brand. Um, so we look to save our trees and protect our forests from being cut down to create single-use household paper products. And we also want to make sure that anything that we're packaging, we're eliminating any single-use household plastics. So that was, you know, for me, what resonated with this proposition is you've got a really really large category at $18 billion yeah. roughly across toilet paper, and paper towel. It's a category, you know, nearly every household uses every day. But at the same time, you know, the US, we are one of the highest consumers of single use paper products per capita of any country across the world. 
And most of the products that we create today are using trees that um, are more often than not taken from forest. And when you do so, like you're taking a tree that took 40 to 50 years to grow mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you're cutting it down, creating a single use product that then gets flushed into the waste system and can never be repurposed again. And, you know, you, you just try to run the numbers a little bit of like, okay, 40 to 50 years to grow. Our rate of usage of paper products is increasing. We're yeah. cutting those down. It's a matter of time. We're we're removing trees and forests from our ecosystem, which play a vital role in helping to absorb all of the man-made carbon that we're continue to create and put out in the environment. So it's like, okay, there's got to be a better solution there. And that's where, you know, we got into looking at other regions and other fibers and, uh, you know, bamboo in particular is it's a, it's a great fiber for tissue making because it tends to be longer, um, especially certain species of it. And, um, Bamboo is a grass. It's not a tree. And mm-hmm. one of the fastest growing plants in the world It can yeah. grow, you know, up to three feet a week. So it's just this huge regenerative tree. And when you yeah. cut it down, it regenerates from the same root. You're not disrupting the soil systems. Uh, and so, gotcha. like, you know, sometimes if you're going in for efficiencies, big, you know, loggers will go in and they'll clear cut a forest. Well, when they do that, they're also disrupting the soil. Yeah. So not only are they removing that tree that was sucking carbon, but then they're also releasing carbon sinks within the soil and that soil's degraded that it can't easily, like you can't replant trees and just expect in 40 or 50 years, it's going to grow there. Sometimes it takes like a hundred years for that area to regenerate to the point of where it was before it was clear cut. So it's just, I think kind of those dynamics are like, okay, you've got a big category that you know, you can potentially make a huge impact because small changes compounded over many people yeah. end up, you know, multiplying to a significant impact. And so that was, you know, I think really for me, the category opportunity and just the brand and, and you know, what it stood for, the simplicity and elegance of, you know, I've got roles yeah. back there in the background too, but just this <laughs> logo that's so creative, like the unrolling of a you know, a reel or a roll to create the R and the logo just kind of was this iconic asset that you could see could really flex and work across a lot of different touch points. And so it could create that visual identity and kind of memory trigger to like, oh, yeah, that's the sustainable brand that I've seen. Like, that's I like that. You said the key word there that we're going to touch on next and sustainable brand, right? It's Mm -hmm. there's a lot that has gone into this space. You know, there's a lot of really, really powerful brands that do really, really good things. I think there's a lot of brands that, you know, put that sustainability on on themselves and maybe they're not so, you know, sustainable or they're just, there's just certain levels of of brands in this space. And, you know, it's difficult sometimes for consumers to really understand, I think, Mm -hmm. what is actually is sort of sustainable or what is regenerative. You know, there's so many different labels now on things and so many different words and things like that, it becomes overwhelming. And then I'm scared that consumers will get so overwhelmed that they'll just kind of go back to what they've done before, right? It just yeah. default to that because it's, it's, there's no anxiety over it, right? It's just simple. It's just like, this is what I've been doing. Is that like, yeah. but you've, you've, you know, oversaw a lot of traditional sort of brands and now you've, you know, you've seen, you know, several uh, different sustainable brands, so to speak, you know, grow up, let's say, yeah. um, What's your sort of pulse on the industry right now as it kind of matures into what it is and maybe some of the, the good things that happened along the way and maybe some of the bad things? Yeah, I think you, you bring up some good points is that the challenge is that there is so much information out there, some of it good, some of it bad, some of it mm-hmm. misinformation. 
and so many products that it's overwhelming and can get very confusing. And a lot of times I think human nature is the default of where I'm confused as I just have doubt and I'm like, okay, just forget it. Like I want to <laughs> yeah, yeah. just forget, I don't want to <laughs> think about this. I don't know. I'm just going to kind of continue to do the same thing I have. And I certainly think that's a big risk and a challenge with all this. You see it across food and bev a lot. You know, I think there's plant-based meats or alternative meats like are in this ebb and like, is it better? Is it good? You know, but I, I think the important thing that I just try to keep in mind is like, these are incremental steps we're going to take. We're going to get better. Are we perfect today? No. But if we can get better, if we can start to impact the category, start to use more sustainable regenerative fibers in a product that's single-use household paper, which can never be recycled because it does dirty things like, you know, so let's just find a better alternative to it. You know, part of the challenge with that is even just within the manufacturing process itself mm -hmm. and that, you know, you have equipment that's used for tissue making is really, really expensive. And so the only way to make that economically viable is I have to run a lot of the same thing all the time. And so there's there's not the appropriate incentives in place. And you see this across like all industries as well. There's not really incentives in place for anyone on the production side to change for the better because it's too expensive and yeah. they're going to dilute their business. And it's just the way whole economic structure of everything is set up. It's just, there's not those incentives. So like with any model, like you need some disruptors to kind of come in to play through that early phase to start to establish mm -hmm. that there is a market here, there's demand. I can create it to such a scale that, okay, this is meaningful and it's been de-risked so that all of the other manufacturers can then come in to say, okay, now I can start to transition and I've got something of considerable scale and mass that I can drop into my supply chain infrastructure yep. and start to produce without it being so dilutive to my overall performance. That's kind of how I think about it. It's like, well, let's just make incremental steps and we will start to hit these inflection points where that rate of change will accelerate. And I it's pretty apparent, I think, as you look at every subsequent generation of just their mindset of how they care about the world as they're faced with things like climate change or even, you know, COVID or other things like they feel this connection. They understand that they're more interdependent than maybe others have been. And so I think I'm just hopeful and optimistic that you'll continue to see more collaboration, more people doing better for the world. And it ultimately will hit some inflection point where it becomes the norm. The problem is it's just that doesn't happen in five years. Yeah. It happens in, you know, 20 to maybe even 40. So we're planting seeds now that will hopefully bear significant fruit, maybe at the end of this decade, maybe not till yeah. the end of the next decade. But in any event, we feel good about we're pushing things forward and making progress. I want to talk about what's sort of worked well, I think, from from a direct-to-consumer point of view versus an in-store point of view yeah. versus Facebook or, or Pinterest ads. Like, Give us an overview of, like I guess, what has worked really well for real paper um, and maybe some of the things that you might have thought would work well and maybe they, they didn't, right? Some of the some of the hurdles that have been faced so far during the growth stage. So I think we were, from just a timing standpoint, we were pretty fortunate that we had launched in 2019 because in March of 2020, we had this awful global event. Everybody was home. A what? pandemic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the weird reaction of folks... Uh, at home of like, what's going on? What do I do? Like this panic. 
some for some reason spread to toilet paper. Yeah, and strange, people huh? were buying it off of shelves like crazy to the point of like it was this hysteria and panic that grocery store shelves everywhere's empty. You couldn't keep toilet paper in stock, and so people started to go online to look for okay. I need toilet paper when I get toilet paper. So we were well positioned to capitalize that and that there was a tailwind of people coming online and looking to other channels to purchase a household staple like toilet paper. So we really benefited from that. Now we could have benefited more because on March 17th, we sold like a month and a half worth of inventory in like 12 hours. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you, there's only so much you can do as you're getting contract production, you know, the lead time to get new inventory in is, you know, 45 days. So, so we were out of stock, we could have done more, but we were very fortunate to have that opportunity. Uh, but I'd say, you know, we were well positioned to capitalize on that. We had a lot of the fundamentals of a, a really clean, simple site. You know, we had um, strong ads and, uh, you know, leveraging a lot of the meta network like Facebook, Instagram, and, and other platforms. Google certainly was key mm -hmm. uh, that we grew very well. And so that that drove the direct-to-consumer business uh, trial. I think going back to what I said earlier is all that is just a total waste of time if the product doesn't deliver. Right. And so yeah. fortunately, we had at the time been working back with our manufacturer in several iterations of trying to improve the product, getting it a little bit better making sure that, you know, we know consumers want sustainable, but they're not going to trade off on performance. So mm -hmm. that's historically been the problem with a lot of sustainable paper products that were maybe made of recycled fiber, um, mm -hmm. is that it felt like more of a value play. So we mm -hmm. were really keen on, we wanted to deliver a premium experience that was sustainable. And so by spending so much time focused on product quality, when we brought those consumers in and closed them on our site, we saw the repeat come through. So we were seeing 80 plus percent of our subscribers buying a second box, which is phenomenal. And then yeah. from there, you've just got a compounded business that grows really quickly. Um, so that's really been the fuel and where we've been fortunate and opportunistic at, at the right time to really grow the DTC business. I think your second question was on the retail side. So I think, you know, taking that success and then bringing it to, okay, how do we win in retail? Yeah. Because if we're going to make any kind of impact in this category, we have to win at retail. That's still where, you know, almost 90% of the category is purchased at a physical store. And, uh, you know, we were fortunate to get an opportunity to talk with Target. You know, a leading retailer has brought digitally native brands yep. to market in big ways, especially on, you know, brands that, stood for sustainability, elegance, and design like Method and others. And so we had a 200 store test with them and started in June of 21. And great, we had the opportunity to get in the door. They were great partners, very fortunate to give us that opportunity. But then I think, you know, we, we took advantage of that opportunity. We crafted a really robust launch plan to make sure that within those first two to three months, we're gonna drive significant trial to get the momentum working in our favor so that Target sees us as a win that they will continue to disproportionately invest resources behind. So yeah, we did that and within, I'd say, two to three months, we were doing about two to three X of what the buyer expected in, wow. in store velocity. And so then that just, that led to other successes. So then they expanded us nationwide in April of 2022. And, um, and you know, it's just kind of leveraging that success. That, okay, win there, deliver in the incremental stores, demonstrate the incrementality and the growth potential of what we're doing for Target to help build their business while we're building ours so that there's kind of 
joint incentives in place for, hey, why are we spending our time doing on this? What is it doing to yeah. help build and support our overall goals, respectively? It's such a huge win to get that the, re- the retail space. I've talked to so many you know, brands is, is that sort of really one of their hardest things to do, you know, as, as a young sort of startup and brand is to sort of get that retail aspect. Um, but a lot of, like you said, maybe goes back to, to branding and sort of simplicity and the decision making of, uh, of a lot of these things that consumers have to have to go through. What was that process like for for you guys and in, in having that conversation? I guess, again, maybe what are some of, some of the advice that that you would give to, you know, to future brands and future entrepreneurs that are trying to get into the retail space. It, it's uh, it's really tough to get that initial conversation. Yeah. So I think that's the toughest point, especially if you've got buyers at all these different retailers. Yeah. There's They're trying to deal with 8 million different situations, people coming at them, different priorities <laughs> yeah. and new items. You know, They're just flooded all the time with, hey, carry our product. So you've got to break through the clutter in some way. I think fortunately for me and Livio's, we had experience. Yep working with Target. So we kind of knew what was important to them and how to position ourselves as, again, hey, this will jointly benefit us. Um, We're here to build your business. And uh, so it's getting somehow cutting through the the noise, getting that initial conversation. But then once you do, make sure you absolutely nail it. And you're talking in their language as well. Like, this isn't just about like our brand of business. We're going to help you grow your business. And we've been able to show that 50% 50% of our buyers had not purchased the bath tissue category in the prior 12 months. So that's pretty significant, despite the fact yeah. that they're in target stores already as much as two times a month. So you've got hmm. people in your store that aren't buying a category that is mm-hmm. a nearly 100% penetrated category that comes down to you not having the right assortment. So it's pretty compelling data to say, yes, they need to continue to grow and support us because we can help build their category development, you know, the more that they have assortment for a household essential item, the more trips it's going to drive for their guests, and then they're going to continue to buy an, an assorted basket of goods uh, yep. with Target. So so that's, that's a big piece, <laughs> kind of going on quite a bit. Here, no, but, but that, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's an important, it's such a, yeah. it's such an important thing to think about, because I think, like you said, it, I think a lot of people go in pitching, you know, themselves, rather than yeah. kind of pitching how you can help them, which is a dynamic that yeah. I, I think is interesting to think about. And that's just the whole persuasive selling construct that I'm sure you could, like if any listeners want to go online and Google, they'll probably find it. But ask questions to your buyer to understand what they value, what's important to them. And then you can just frame everything back to helping address their challenges yep. or you know really growth opportunities. But the last piece I wanted to touch on is I think just when you launch, it's not just putting it out and hoping it sells. You have to be very intentional about creating mm-hmm. a plan that's going to support that. I think the other thing that we were pretty intentional about is just channel prioritization because you can start to get into this game of like, well, we don't want to cannibalize too many of our sales from this channel to grow mm. this other one. Yeah. You know, like because, you know, is that really what's best for the business? But for, us and our team was very clear, like, we have to make this a success because 90% of this category is purchased in brick and re- brick and mortar mm-hmm. and retail. We have right. to have this be successful for us to unlock other opportunities and other channels and ultimately have a big impact. Like the other channels will come along and continue to grow with that. We'll have kind of an omni-channel plan that'll allow us to prioritize and say, when do we focus here versus there? But 
we can't be scared of losing subscribers to Target. So we would, on our mm. homepage, mm -hmm. the top of the banner, like now available in Target. Yep. And everywhere that we were in that first year was driving people to say, find us in Target. We're now in your local Target or in 200 at the time. But um, here's the stores where you can find us. You can also order us online. And that just helped to drive success. I mean, in particular, what we saw was about two and a half X of our business was driven online. So we were, sales were initiated either through Target's app or on target.com. And so it was another signal to Target to say, you're helping us to win with millennial, kind of digitally savvy consumers that otherwise we may have lost to other, some other e-commerce partner. And so when you start to see that, like, hey, here's where we can fit in strategically to help Target grow their business, and then you just continue to hammer it and just fuel it more and more to say, look, we're having a greater impact, a greater impact. This is helping you to win in the broader marketplace. You start to create those little stories that generate the excitement, which continues to you know, provide that support that you need to continue to grow your business there. And those conversations, is, is exclusivity a given in, in these sort of conversations? We, yeah, it, it wasn't for us. They, um, you know, we, they'd said, hey, you, we don't need exclusivity. You guys can go other. I think there is some benefit to being very intentional, though, and starting yeah. small and making sure that you learn your lessons <laughs> in a smaller context mm -hmm. versus maybe casting a wide net. And then you realize, hey, there's something I need to fix and change. And now it's a lot messier to untangle that. So we, we were like, hey, let's do this. It's very disciplined. We have 200 stores. We'll see success there. We'll grow from there. We'll expand nationally. We'll make sure it works in kind of all major metro markets. And then we'll have the nice case to present to other retailers to be like, look, this is a winning proposition. It's proven. We don't have to continue to sell you on the what if and the hope and promise. Yeah. Like there's concrete data here that shows this is a winning proposition. Yeah. I mean, seen such amazing growth in such a short period of time. I mean, just really just a few years. We'll end a little bit on the future here. And what, what does the next three to five years look like? You know, what are some of the goals and sex, successes you and the team would like to see sort of in that time span? Yeah. I mean, the primary goal is just continue to grow um, and grow so in a way where the engine becomes more efficient so that mm -hmm. um, we are self-sustaining. So, you know, retail development continues to be a big focus. So we just launched in Harris Teeter this week in North Carolina. There's a bunch of other natural uh, and conventional grocers coming online nice. in the next couple of months. So proof points across other retail channels. And then, you know, through that learning cycle of, we know we stand out at the shelf at Target that sells, but in a grocery store context, it's right. a totally different environment. How do we stand <laughs> out there? What's the right pricing and promotional strategy to support it and be successful? Um, so that becomes a big focus as we continue to build, you know, our e-commerce and DTC businesses. Uh, long term, it's just product innovation. So a lot of work being done just to how do we continually improve the product? Um, how do we introduce you know new items and improve those? So we've got a paper towel product in addition to our toilet paper, launching other household paper items that would otherwise be single-use tree-based products. Um, tissue paper. I mean, that's a great one yeah, too, which I'll have. Yeah. Exactly. And just continuing to expand that and start to build, you know, more of the infrastructure and supply chain that's closer to the market that we're serving with partners mm -hmm. that we can create, you know, some innovative products with that will continue to break through. I mean, I think uh, I think our model has a saving like eight million trees by the year 2030. Wow. Um, 
you know, we donate 50 cents for every box we sell back to One Tree Planet that I think is one of your partner mm-hmm. organizations, which is mm-hmm. a, a great organization. So we want to reforest where we can and um, make sure we're protecting our environment. But ultimately, I think it's it's just try to reduce the number of tree-based single-use paper products that consumers are using their home and giving them a better alternative where there's not significant trade-offs. And if we do that well and continue to you know, be very disciplined in the execution, we'll build something that's meaningful here in size, you know, that will ultimately become, you know, a, a hopefully a, you know, a 5% share or a 10% share in the category, which, you know, okay, that's huge, seem though. Big, but you know, when you're talking about $18 billion category, that's a huge business here. Um, and it's, it's the right time, right? Because we talked about the, the mindset of millennials and a Gen Z, everyone's becoming more conscious about the little changes they can make that ultimately will have a big impact. And this just feels like one of those categories where it's a simple change. And you don't have to change your lifestyle. I mean, I think that's the biggest, the biggest part of all this is you can kind of do what you've always done. You know, it's just, it's, it's just shifting, obviously your wallet a little bit, but also just shifting your mindset and just your, your vision right on the aisles that you're on a little bit. It's the simple things that, like you said, I mean, that's sometimes that at scale is going to make some of the biggest impact because like going back to 8% of the market or 5% of the market, if we just change even 1%, 2% of consumer habits, you know, we're talking about consumerism of a trillion dollar industry, right? And we shifting one, 2% of that, we start to see some significant changes in reforestation and sustainability, but also in job creation. Um, I think- the industry grows and grows, I think that opportunity to to build sort of career paths for, for individuals who might not have it before, I think is also a huge opportunity for, for the sector. Yeah, without a doubt. And even just the, you know, we're kind of talking about that it's, you know, it's tough to get more sustainable solutions to build that traction. It seems slow, but I think just this, the first part of just getting people to question or reconsider what they're doing across different behaviors that become so i think habitual like i'm just gonna buy this paper product because it's what i've always bought it's what i grew up with my parents bought for me but just to stop and think about it even if they don't buy something more sustainable initially to get them to consider that over time you'll start to have an impact it's just slow because it takes so many exposures and education barriers of like well i would do it but this and then like okay well now we address that. Now we address the next thing. Yeah, I mean, education is a huge part of this, right? I mean, that's why mm-hmm. I do this for the most part. Absolutely. But it's 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 that simple thing because I think when you present consumers with the pitch that you've created and other brands have created, and then also, like you said, to me on the back end, it does the product contend with the products that they have extor- you know historically used, and if you can match. And not just like design, but also in capability and execution on the product, and it and it be just as amazing of a product as traditional things have been. Then all these other positive aspects come in on the front end and the back end. It, it becomes a no brainer for for consumers. And look, as we scale, price points will come down, and, and then we'll be able to compete at that level, right? That's sort of yeah. the next maturation of all this. Uh, but I always like to say, you know, even if you just buy, you know, maybe it's you don't shift your your habits, you know, altogether at once, right? But maybe you buy for let's just use real, right? You buy real maybe you know once once the you know every three months right now, you know maybe. Not every time you go to the store, you, you're able to buy it just from a price point standpoint. But if you just do it, you know, once out of every few times, 
that little part makes a big difference as well. Because again, at scale, we're talking about in this industry is massive. Um, so a total shift to me is somehow it, it's it's not as easy as that. Sometimes, sometimes yeah. it takes that <laughs> takes those little bitty uh, purchases, you know, over time, and and then uh, then you go from there. We'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, David, for taking the time. I know you're busy. Love the brand. Lo- love the the organization. Love the company. Love to see the startup story, idea, design, execution, and now you know, in that growth stage. So amazing to see. Best of luck to you and the team for the next decade. Thanks so much, Grant. It's good being here. 